Hey, I don't know if any of you heard, but the uh, Supreme Court met recently. Did you guys hear this? I know social media and the pastors in the news have kind of ignored this, so I thought I'd bring you up to date, all right, uh, just in case you haven't heard. Seriously, though, some of you have contacted me on how we are to respond with our government-sanctioning gay marriage. Why do millions of Americans not feel like love won? I'm going to try to lay a foundation today, and then next week I'm going to address uh, specifically some of the issues related to gay marriage, but I'm not going to talk too much about that today, as I don't claim to have a complete understanding here. I don't know about you, but, you know, my heart kind of sank when I first heard it, and, you know, you have a lot of these thoughts that kind of run through your mind, and I can't possibly address every nuance of this issue. But I know that as a pastor, even though I've been gone the last two weeks, I can, uh, I can basically understand why some of you might be fearful or, or be anxious, even angry, about what has taken place. I frankly don't know what it's going to mean for us, although I can kind of guess. I have a friend who is a judge in another state uh, who communicated that they had a man who had applied for a license to marry his dog. That didn't take long. The majority opinion of the, uh, of the court said that religious organizations are still going to enjoy their freedoms and not to worry about our rights being infringed upon. Of course, this comes under the same administration of a president who in 2008 said that he was against gay marriage. And now he is quoted as saying, and I quote, when I read the Bible, I do so with the belief that it's not a static text, but the living word, Then I must continually be open to new revelations. So if you're seeking hope from our political leaders, then I'd suggest you are setting yourself up for certain disappointment. And what is even more disconcerting so-called Christians being kind of sucked into the cultural tide that, at least in my opinion, is being turned away from truth and logic. The net effect, I think, is that the salt has been diminished, the light has been darkened, and the Christian influence within our culture is being severely hampered. And the problems are indeed systemic and not just related to gay marriage. The abortion rate, for instance, among Protestant women is actually higher than the overall rate. Cohabitation rather than marriage is the new normal. Over 40% of U.S. births are to unmarried mothers. Between 40 and 50% of married people in the United States divorce. And the divorce rate for subsequent marriages is even higher. About two-thirds of all men view pornography, and the figures for Christian men really aren't any difference. Now, my point is not to say that America is going to hell in a handbasket, nor is it to, you know, fight the government to the finish. My point is that we have a hope that remains the same and that we do not have to live in fear or be overcome by anger as a result of these things that have taken place. And that's my first point, is that our hope remains in Christ no matter the political climate or how the culture shifts. We read in Romans 8, 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Notice that in verse 18, it says, whatever our travail is going to be small in comparison to the hope that we have in Christ. We can expect the whole world, including its political system, no matter what country you live in, to ache, to groan until that hope is realized. Now, our hope is not connected to a political environment or in things going in our favor in America. Our hope is tethered to an eternal God and to Christ. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This isn't the, you know, hanging on for dear life kind of hope. This is an abounding, overflowing hope, so that our confidence is not shaken. We read in Hebrews 6, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind a curtain. Our hope is not that the world is going to mirror our morals. That's not our hope. But that we are heirs of the promise of God and that he does not lie. And he guarantees this hope for us. So much so that it says that we are to be strongly encouraged. We're only going to be strongly encouraged as we center ourselves on that hope. And he guarantees this. Our hope is to be so sure and so steadfast to this anchor in the midst of the shifting sand, the turbulence of the world, how the culture changes, we can still experience that hope. The hope is not some impersonal theological dogma, but what it says here in this passage is that it's essentially personalized for us in Christ whereby we enjoy intimate fellowship with him so that there's no separation, no curtain keeping us from enjoying that fellowship, even in the midst of the turbulence. Here's another passage to chew on. Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God calls us strangers, foreigners, exiles in the culture. We cannot expect this culture to set up a vacation lodge for Christians and then jump to our every whim. That is an unrealistic expectation. The world is going to be antagonistic to people of faith. Now, I'm aware of the historical precedent of our country and its great Christian heritage that we have enjoyed for 200-some years. It was a great ride. It really was. Certainly not perfect. But the America Republic that our forefathers had envisioned was set sail by the wind of of a Judeo-Christian consensus. But that consensus did not last very long in terms of the totality of human history. And now the scales are back to normal, back to how we should expect the world to act. It is why I've said before that our hope as a nation is not through a political system, but it's going to be from the gospel. Because even our founders said that this is not going to work for an irreligious people, that the way that they'd set it up is only going to work for religious people. But that's no longer the case. So the only way we can see that turn around is through the gospel. That's what changes the hearts of humankind. Now, it's not that I wouldn't particularly like a Christian consensus. I would. Or that I wouldn't like our leaders to reflect thinking close to a biblical worldview. But listen, these things are not promised to us. Now, we do have the promise of in a millennial kingdom when Christ comes back, that there will be a godly rule, but not in this life. This leads to our next point, that our confidence and peace are not achieved through the culture acquiescing to our values. Our confidence and peace are not achieved through the culture acquiescing to our values. If our expectation were that we cannot be at peace, we cannot enjoy life unless the political system resembles our values as Christians, then what else is that going to produce than constant disappointment? Now, I am not in denial of the state of affairs in America presently. I'm not rejecting the rich Christian heritage. But rather, what I'm rejecting is the sense of privilege that America should be Christian and that our calling is trying to fight to make it so. What I hope we can see is that if that is our goal, then that puts us on a track that runs counter to our God-given mission. And it positions our hearts to love the privilege. And this, I believe, gets us off mission. The passage in Hebrews that was a call to exhibit faith in any circumstance, nowhere does the author of Hebrews tell those people to now double down on your patriotism, double down on your nationalism. 
Such desires must be kept in check or put into perspective with godly affections. Now, some who may be hearing this are going to think that this sounds anti-patriotic. But certainly we can recognize, can we not, that the church of Jesus Christ is a lot bigger than America? That there are millions of believers in other countries? Right? And whatever truth we live by has to apply to them as well. Here's another way to look at it. I love my wife. I love golf. I love the Cardinals. I love a good steak. I love the United States. But all these things are not equal to my love for Christ. They have to be subservient to his wishes and desires and affections. There's room to be fiercely patriotic, but such actions are to be in the context and to be subservient to being a disciple of Christ. The author of Hebrews accounts how people of faith were treated as if to adjust our expectations as uh, we seek to abide by faith. Here's some of the things that happened to this group of people in this hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Our calling as Christians is not to usher in a Christian theocracy. America is not the new Israel. It's not the city on a holy hill. And such thinking only reinforces the idea that we are politically entitled to our opinions being codified. God has never promised us a majority political power structure to wield our morality. And such thinking, I think, is not only bad theology, but it's bad for our blood pressure. I'm not saying I don't want the laws to reflect a Christian mindset. The issue is the position of our hearts in seeking political clout or being servants of the real king, the sovereign king. When you look at history, you look at Constantine. You look at the church in Europe, and it seems that the church best influences from the bottom up and not from the top down. The church must not trade grace for power. The influence of the church, I think, is to be more of a spillover effect upon the culture and not some strong-arming tactics. In fact, Jesus told Peter, when faced with evil that was overwhelming at the time in the garden, he told him to put away his sword. The kingdom of God is not one that's brought by force. But I'm not suggesting either that we withdraw in some kind of pietistic retreat. This is the kind of idea that led the Christians in Nazi Germany. This is their mantra. The swastika on our breast and the cross in our hearts. We are to exhibit an engagement that is typified by, I think, humility and love 
and insight. This is our next point. Andy Rooney, the late commentator on the 60 Minutes television show, he once said this. He said, I've decided that I'm against abortion. I think it's murder. But I have a dilemma in that I much prefer the pro-choice to the pro-life people. I'd rather eat dinner with a group of the former. (laughs) And I think Rooney speaks for a large segment of the culture. And some of this animus is, I think, due to the bent of the human heart. John 3.20 makes this point when it says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That explains some of it. But some of it is also due to the attitude of Christians. It's self-induced, this hostility, because many in the faith community have been so judgmental and prideful. The late American author Kurt Vonnegut wrote, For some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, but often with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. (laughs) The tone of our conversation, it speaks louder than our words. The words of Jesus are instructive here. He said in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Such a perspective does not seem to meld with what I call Facebook hysteria, name-calling, bad logic, and clumsy pronouncements. Randall Terry, the man who fights against abortion, called for Christians in Colorado to become, and I'm quoting, intolerant zealots when it comes to baby killers, sodomites, condom pushers, and that pluralism nonsense. He said that Christians need to stop being little scaredy cats in Christian ghettos playing spiritual tiddlywinks. We need rather, and again, I'm quoting, to clean out the moral cesspool this nation has become and make this a Christian nation again. And more then he went on and added that we need to make a Christian conquest of other nations. And his comments made the front page of the Colorado newspapers, feeding the already public persona of Christian bullies. And then he added this. I want you to let a a wave of hatred wash over you. Yes, hate is good. We have a biblical duty. We are called by God to conquer this country. Terry says aloud what I regrettably suspect many Christians think. But I want to suggest to you that such an approach is counterproductive to the gospel and spiritual fruit. You know, you might, through political maneuvering, force a law, but you have lost a people. Instead of being wise and harmless, our tone and words can cause great hurt, create distance from us, from the very people that we're called to love and reach. 
instead of washing feet and serving, our hearts are positioned to intimidate and become demanding. The Apostle Paul was a good model in Acts 24. While before the governor of Felix, he was respectful in in working within the political system, and yet his, his allegiance was clearly to Christ. And he said to Felix, knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And the tone of it was with great respect. Listen, you may not like what I'm saying right now. You may think I'm out to lunch and that this is some panty-waist approach. But what I'm going to challenge you to do is you defend your position from Scripture. You might think that Jesus carried some AR-15 ready to, you know, blow away all the enemies for God. Defend it from a biblical standpoint. All right? You can give me all the macho stuff you want. But you give me chapter and verse how we as New Testament Christians are to respond in this culture. And by the way, I don't think it's wussified. I think it's great strength to approach people with meekness and humility. And frankly, you're out of control, a lot of the Christians, in the way that they are responding. Meekness means strength under control. I am treating people with respect even though I fiercely oppose what they stand for. That takes great strength. It doesn't take much strength to try to slug somebody or force myself like I'm some alcoholic man, you know, forcing my way in and, you know, blustering through. All right, you're just a jerk then. But what Jesus is calling us to, a much humbler, meeker approach. When our approach calls for more morality derived through power and less mercy and love, is this not self-defeating? Tim LaHaye is quoted as saying, the only way to have a genuine spiritual revival is to have legislative reform. Well, I disagree with Tim LaHaye. T.S. Eliot said, to justify Christianity because it provides a foundation of morality instead of showing the necessity of Christian morality from the truth of Christianity is a dangerous inversion. Laws are a reflection of a lawmaker's heart. And can we rightfully expect our culture to adopt Christian values and to put into civil law our moral beliefs. C.S. Lewis, for instance, came out in favor of allowing divorce on the grounds that we as Christians have no right to impose our morality on society at large. Although he opposed divorce on moral grounds, he maintained the difference between morality and legality. And this is where I think wisdom for the Christian must come in. So how do we love and influence those who clearly make an anti-biblical stance and are riding this wave of this moral downward spiral? Well, number one, I think, we have to conduct our conversations with those who disagree with great respect and love. And this includes our Facebook posts and how we address 
political figures that we differ with. You don't think the Apostle Paul differed with the political leaders that wanted his head, literally? And yet he still approached them with respect. And yet what we have within modern-day evangelicalism are people putting up their middle finger to our president. I can disagree with him, and I do, on about 90% of what he has to say and what he stands for. But I can still treat him as a human being and with respect. Secondly, we have to focus our efforts on our own house, on our own church. We will not influence the culture through a change of law, but rather by our witness, exhibiting the benefits of a godly lifestyle. We have to strengthen our own marriages, learn to live in harmony with our own church before we think that others are going to be attracted to our sense of ethics. Otherwise, what are we offering people? You think they're going to be convinced of taking our morality when we can't get along with each other? Or when the divorce rate is the same as the world? I doubt it. Number three, we have to arm ourselves with knowing how to address worldview issues that reveal foundational cracks. For instance, using the logic to justify gay marriage, how does that apply in other areas? The majority opinion of the Supreme Court was largely based upon human autonomy and freedom. Justice Kennedy said this, A first premise of the court's relevant precedence is that the right, is that the right of personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. Well, using that logic, what would prohibit then, you know, any other aberration of marriage? Basically nothing. And for those interested in consistency, such items would be a cause for concern. You know, what is the basis of you making an ethical decision? Those are fair questions. Can you be consistent with this system that you have adopted? Those are fair questions. And those focus more on the core of the issue. If we are arguing about gay marriage, which is the product of a worldview, without addressing the more fundamental issues, I'm going to suggest that our influence will be limited. In fact, I think it will even be negative because you keep hammering at issues in which people don't understand the more fundamental issues. And it's not that we don't have anything to offer or have to say about gay marriage. I think we do. And there are valid arguments that are... I think not even scriptural. There are some that are scriptural, but some that are outside of scripture. They're just common sense. And we'll address some of that next week. But these arguments are to be used to shed light on more fundamental issues. Ultimately, our respect and love for all, our focus upon cleaning up our own house, the consistent witness of our personal lives and community, and our willingness to put the focus on core issues, I think will help us be salt and light. During the height of the Cold War, Billy Graham visited Russia, and he met with government and church leaders. And Christians and political uh, conservatives harshly criticized 
Billy Graham for doing this because he treated the Russians with courtesy and respect. And what they thought is that he needed to go in more of a prophetic tone, condemning all of the wrong stances that Russian leaders had taken, and particularly for how they had limited religious liberty. One of his critics confronted Billy Graham and pointedly said, Dr. Graham, you have set the church back 50 years. Graham lowered his head and he replied, I am deeply ashamed. I've been trying very hard to set the church back 2,000 years. Our mission and our manner are crystallized in the person of Christ. May every cultural issue that confronts us be an opportunity for the world to see the Christ that cares for them and offers them a solution to what ails them. Let's pray.